Um, if you haven't met, my name's Rachel. I'm part of the team here, and um, I'm preaching this morning. So hopefully, oh, thanks, Trudy. If you didn't hear that, she said, "Oh, good." Um, I pay. I pay you later. This is a bit wobbly, isn't it? <laughs> I think it might fall over. Thank you, Dave. Oh, thank you, my beautiful assistant. So, I was at the Chris Dingle service um, last Sunday, in fact. I don't know if you were there, but we started off with the Chris Dingle service, or part of it. There was um, a, qu- a Christmas quiz, five questions, and I didn't actually get them all right, which I was a bit embarrassed about, especially the biblical ones I didn't actually get right. So, I'm going to try them out on you. What did Mary... No, oh, I did this in the 9.15 as well. Okay, let's just roll it back. How did Mary get to Bethlehem? On a donkey. Uh-uh. She didn't actually go on a donkey, Hazel Askew. <laughs> but I said exactly the same thing because I've been groomed by nativity plays all my life. And there's always a smiling donkey. But it doesn't say in the biblical account that Mary rode on a donkey. Can you believe that? We've been sold a lie. Is anything true anymore? Calm down, it's all right. I get a bit overexcited. I mean, the chances are she did go on a donkey. That is true. Because she wouldn't have been able to walk. She was hugely pregnant. And if you tried walking when you're hugely pregnant, you can't, you can't get very far. So she probably did ride on a donkey. But the Bible doesn't say she rode on a donkey. We just assume that she did. Um, okay, how many wise men were there? You're all nervous now, aren't you? Like, what is the right answer? I don't know. I don't want to say. <laughs> Nobody knows. No, God knows, because he knows everything, but nobody knows how many wise men there are, so we call them three kings, uh-uh, they weren't kings, they were wise men, astrologers, and uh, we think there's three because we say gold, myrrh, um, gold, myrrh, no, gold, thank you, <laughs> gold, myrrh, and frankincense, that's the one, what's the third one, it's the frankincense, isn't it, yeah, which are very symbolic, which we're not going to get into now, but... My point is, you're thinking, why is, what's the point of all this? The point is, we can get so wrapped up in the, the kind of mythical fairy tale nature of the Christmas story, we can kind of like forget what's real, what isn't real, what is true, what isn't true. You know, smiling donkeys, fairy, not fairies, there's always fairies, isn't there? But there weren't actually fairies there, folks. There's no fairies in the Bible. But we often have them at the nativity. And I bet you next Sunday there will be fairies. I might even wear some fairy wings if I can find some. But there were no fairies there. There were angels. There were miraculous events. There were shepherds. There were wise men. There was Mary, the virgin, who had never had sex with anyone, and yet she was pregnant with the Messiah. There was Joseph, who was struggling with all of that to get his head around it, understandably. Um, these are the kind of like the key tenets of the Christmas story. All the other stuff is kind of like all the embellishments that we kind of put on there to kind of have it out. So this morning, I want to talk about the reality of the Christmas story. I want to talk about what we know to be true, what we know that we can really base our lives upon, not kind of get swept up in the, the kind of the, the peripheral stuff, the fluffy stuff that probably isn't actually true. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at some of the prophecies in the Old Testament which talk about the coming Messiah. And we're going to look at three pretty closely, and we're going to see how they were fulfilled. Because the truth is, the Christmas story is about the God of the universe coming in to our world and presencing himself amongst us as a baby, frail, fragile, experiencing all the things that babies experience and growing up to be a man who lived 
for life like we lived, who suffered, who breathed, who got tired, who slept, who had relationships and friendships, who had to navigate the difficulties of life like we do. And it's the best story in the world, the best story that can ever be told, the best story that breaks into our lives. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, some biblical scholars suggest that there are around 300 prophecies that predict the coming of Christ. 300 prophecies in the Old Testament which are fulfilled in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. And um, that is an incredible fact. It's incredible to get your head around the fact that there were 300 writings that were fulfilled in Christ that run through the whole entire Old Testament. And it's even more incredible when you think that the whole Bible was written in a period that spans 1,500 years, when it is made up of 66 books, and it is written by 40 different authors. And the, even the literature in the Bible is so different. There's history, there's poetry, there's song, there's letters, there's lists, there's genealogies. All this stuff... Is, has this sort of incredible, like, if you were kind of trying to organize that yourself, it would be a hodgepodge of all different stuff. It wouldn't make sense. It would be incoherent. There would be bits over there, bits over there. This just would not be a narrative arc. We would never be able to do that. But in the Bible, there is this incredible narrative arc that stems from the beginning of the book right to the end of the book. And I find that incredible. There's this picture that I'm going to get on the screen. And it was done by um, two academics in America, quite recently, actually. And it basically is a digital image of the narrative arc, the thread, the cross-references, the prophecies of the whole entire Bible. Isn't it beautiful? It's a bit like a rainbow. Funny that, isn't it? And it's on this, um, all the sort of lines link something from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And, uh, and uh, as you can see, right at the very beginning, the very first book of the Bible links right to the very end, the last book of the Bible. And it's only an image, and it can only do so much, you know. We're not, I'm not trying to kind of make it out, this incredible revelation. But it can be quite helpful for those of us that like sort of pictorial images to, to make us see that the Bible has this incredible thread running all the way through it. This incredible theme of redemption, of restoration, of salvation. And it all hinges on Jesus. It all hinges on the baby born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. He is the center of it all. Last week, I um, was reading about some of these prophecies that were fulfilled. And uh, another scholar in America tried to work out the probability of them being fulfilled. And he took 10 of them, 10 of the most sort of like um, clear and obvious ones. And the probability of all 10 of them being fulfilled is actually very, very, very improbable. The, the, the probability of one of them being fulfilled is pretty much improbable and impossible. So what he's saying basically is that, you know, maybe it would be one could be fulfilled, although that's pretty improbable. All 10 of them being fulfilled is impossible. And yet there are 300 of them that were fulfilled by the coming of Christ. What does that tell us? It tells us that the God of the universe has an incredible plan and it hinges on Jesus. It talks about the sovereignty of God, who is outside of our time and space, and has managed to kind of um, curate this incredible story, this incredible arc of scripture, because he is sovereign, and his, his hand is over our world. It talks about the love of God, 
who sees the world and doesn't want to be separate and, and kind of dispassionate and removed from it, but wants to enter into the world and make a difference, offer us his salvation, redeem us, bring us back into the family, into the fold where we've gone our own way. And it speaks of the salvation of God as he was going to send Jesus to be the one who would save us from our sins and save us from ourselves. Because I don't know about you, I have totally realized that I cannot save myself. I cannot ever be good enough, right enough, holy enough, spiritual enough. I just can't. I'm 52 years old and I've totally realized <laughs> that I can't do that. I can't get out of bed in the morning and last the day without thinking a bad thought about somebody, without you know, losing my rag with somebody, without having road rage, not very much road rage, just a little bit of road rage. You know, because I am an imperfect person like all you are, and I can't save myself. Dave's really nodding about that. He's like, he's saying, yeah, she is. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to take a look at three of the prophecies to help us kind of fortify our faith if, if we're Christians here. And if you're not a Christian here or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, you stumbled across this, this preach, then hopefully it will help you think, actually, maybe there's something in this. Maybe there's something in this. I was really annoyed. I was watching. I was a little bit annoyed, quite annoyed. I was watching, oh, he's a really great comic. And he was on TV the other night. My husband was watching it. And I was doing something in the kitchen. And I could hear him. And he was commenting on the survey that recently came out that the um, less people are Christians than ever before in our country. And like, okay, we have known this a long time. We know we're a minority. And that's okay. I'm pretty cool with that because it means that institutionalized religion is on the decrease, which I think means Jesus followers can be on the increase. We're not inoculated by bad religion. Anyway, he was commenting on this. He's the guy from Bristol. I can't remember his name. Maybe I shouldn't name him. I don't want to get sued. Anyway, he was, um, he was commenting on that. He's going, yeah, that's because we're growing up. And we've grown up out of Christianity. And he went on this, like, five-minute rant about how terrible Christianity is and how terrible Christians are. I thought, I'm going to write to him, Russell Howard. I'm going to write to Russell Howard. Because he's a funny guy. He's from Bristol, I think. And, um, but he was really negative and derogatory about Christians. And I'm not offended because there's no point really. But I want to kind of say, hang on a minute. I'm a grown-up. I love Jesus. Anyway, that was an aside. So we're going to take a look at three prophecies. And uh, just have a look at them and see how they were fulfilled in the New Testament. So we're going to look at the hows. And then we're going to end by looking at the why. And the story of Jesus doesn't start in the New Testament with the Gospels, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Primarily Matthew and Luke. That's where they have the gospel, the um, nativity narrative. But Jesus begins in the Old Testament, right in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which means beginnings. And it starts thousands of years before Jesus arrives. And it's where God sets apart one man to be the father of a new nation from which Jesus is going to come from. And this is the first verse. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes this covenant or this promise with Abraham that from him is going to come 
a savior, someone that's going to come and bless the whole entire world, which is a crazy thing to do for Abraham to believe that because he didn't have any children at this point. And he thought his wife couldn't conceive. And they were both pretty old. So to be told by God that you are going to be the forefather of a nation and you, your ancestors, your family is going to bless the whole entire world is a pretty crazy promise. But because God is true to his word, he miraculously had a child, Isaac. And hundreds of years later, around 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah prophesies about someone who is going to come in the future, who is going to transform and affect the whole entire world. And in his prophecy, he harks back to Abraham. And he also harks back to King David, who was in the line of Abraham, the man who couldn't have any children. And this is what Isaiah says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Oh, I love that passage. It's beautiful. It's so weighty. It speaks of so much. 700 years later, are you still with me? 700 years later, we get to Matthew's gospel. Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, begins his gospel with this massive genealogy, a list of all the ancestors of Jesus. And he goes back, and it, we don't really like the genealogies, if we're honest. They're long, they're difficult names and words. We don't understand them. It's hard to say them. They're not words and names that are familiar to us, and so we often skirt over them. But that genealogy has gold in it because it links Jesus right back to King David, right back to Abraham in Genesis. Jesus has come through that line that God had predicted he would, right back in Genesis. This is what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And I'm going to fill in the bits here, okay? And it says, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And the list goes on. And it's in multiples of seven, which if you know anything about the Bible, you know seven is like a really it's a perfect number. It's the number of completion. And so Matthew links back Jesus, born of Mary, right back to Abraham in multiples of seven, charting his ancestors all the way back. And you know what? That is incredible because nobody can determine when they're born. You can't try and be born at a certain time in a certain place by certain parents. That was me trying to be born. Do you like it? You know, you can't do it. You can't, you cannot choose when you're born. Some of us really know that. We can't choose where we're born, the place of our birth. 
but Jesus can. Jesus did. He fulfilled the prophecies by knowing who his ancestors were, by chasing it all back. He was born in Bethlehem, which was predicted hundreds of years previously by Micah, the prophet. He can predict where he's going to be born. He can choose where he's going to be born. This is something um, that Isaiah says about Mary. Not knowing he's talking about Mary, of course. But this is what he says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. What a beautiful name that Jesus has, Emmanuel. God with us. God with you. Every one of you. Emmanuel, God with us. And there had been a few clues for Mary that she is pregnant with this really unusual assignment, really unusual baby, that she's been chosen by God, set apart. First of all, an angel visits her, quite unusual. An angel visits her, tells her she's going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit, not because she slept with her husband-to-be, but because of the Holy Spirit. Joseph freaks, understandably, because his fiance is pregnant and he knows it's not his. So he's like, well, I'm going to break that off because this is not right. And then the angel visits him and says, hold on a minute. Hang on, you've got the wrong end of the stick here. Understandably, poor Joseph. You know, actually, she is pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. This is a God miracle. This is a supernatural event. This is God breaking into history. This has nothing to do with a man, but everything to do with God. It's no ordinary baby. God has entered into the world and placed himself in a womb, a fragile place to be. He has decided to do that at that particular point in history, at that particular point in time. And Luke records Mary's response. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7 fulfilled in Luke. Hundreds of years between these two events. And yet Jesus fulfills it. And even the most skeptical among us, and there might be some skeptics in the room, we're really glad you're here, or if you're watching online. But I think maybe even the most skeptical amongst us cannot fail to be slightly impressed by these events, by the fact that these things were sort of so specifically predicted and then so specifically fulfilled hundreds of years later. A virgin getting pregnant, giving birth in a little piddly little place called Bethlehem that no one's ever heard of, that Jesus would be in this ancestral line of King David and Abraham. 
tracing, you can trace it all the way back. But these fulfillments aren't just impressive statistics, although I think they are pretty impressive. They're not just sort of like, uh, you know, ticking the boxes just to make us really feel convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. Although it kind of does do that and makes me think, wow, you know, I think of that picture I showed before and I think the arc of the narrative is so impressive. It's so weighty. But maybe that is about how, how Jesus came to be in this part of time, in that part of history, how he broke in and and the timings of it all, that's the how. But the why is maybe sort of the question that we need to answer. The why. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus break into our world? Why did Jesus come as a baby, frail, dependent on his parents? Why did he choose that? Well, it's the incarnation. The incarnation is the deep, wide, hard-to-get-your-head-around truth of why Jesus broke into our world. He came to be one of us, to be like us. He came to experience what it is like to be human. The human condition is what we talk about, isn't it? What it's like to be human. And it's blimmin' hard. And there can be so many things about being human that make life a struggle. And tap into our pain and our frailty. We suffer. We, We are joyful. We cry, we're hungry, we're cold, we're lonely, we're tired, we're weary. All those things that Jesus experienced. John puts it in his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Isaiah said, he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. There's something about God that wants to be among us and with us. He wants to get down with us in the frailty and fragility of life and identify with us, but not just kind of get down and go, I know it's really bad, isn't it? I know how you feel. Although I I kind of sense he does do that. He wants to lift us up. He wants to offer us his salvation. He wants to save us from our sin. He wants to restore us in relationship with the Father God. All those things we cannot do ourselves. He chose to lay down his privileges and his power to come and be with us. And then provide us with a way back to God. I love this quote from Henry Nguyen. It says, Jesus in whom God's fullness dwells is our home. By choosing us as his preferred home, he invites us to choose him as our own dwelling. That is the mystery of the incarnation. I'm going to say it again because it's so good. You've got to say it twice. Jesus, in whom God's fullness dwells, is our home. By choosing us as his preferred home, he invites us to choose him as our own dwelling. That is the mystery of the incarnation. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. He didn't choose to come, you know, for his own need. He came for our need. He came to be God with us and God among us. A few years ago, actually quite a few years ago now, 
um, I had my wedding ring stolen off my finger at gunpoint. That's a true story. Um, it wasn't in Bristol. <laughs> it was a very, lo- very long way away. And uh, we'd only been married a couple of years, I think. And uh, I was a bit detached to that ring because it was my grandmother's. And um, some naughty person, man, stole it from me. Someone gave me their, an, an old wedding ring that they had. But I never felt particularly attached to it, particularly, because it, you know, it was just sentimentally not connected to me. But I wore it for many years. And then as we um, been married for quite a while, I think it was like 25 years, I wanted a new wedding ring. I thought that wasn't too much to ask. I've been married 25 years. I deserved a reward, quite frankly. And um, <laughs> so did Martin. So did Martin. And uh, so I chose, a, I chose a ring, and I thought, I want something engraved on this ring that is meaningful to me. And uh, I thought about it. And it hadn't been long. It had been, a, I think, a couple of years after our son had died. And I just thought, I want all the initials of my family on that ring, Sam's included. And I want the word Emmanuel inscribed on it because it's God with us. And here it is. It's on my finger now. Can't really see it because it's very small. But it's got Emmanuel inscribed around the outside of it and then the initials of my family. And it all connects. Because the incarnation is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us now today in our mess, in our grief, in our pain, in our struggle, in our joys, in our celebrations, in our fears, in our anxieties. God is with us. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of Christmas. God with us, not just to stay with us, but to lift us up and show us the way to God. Show us the way to salvation. And I don't know, you might be here, you might not know Jesus yet. You might be observing a little bit and exploring faith. And actually, we are so glad you are here because we love it. We love having people checking out faith. But I really want to encourage you to keep on that journey and to keep asking the questions and to keep wrestling with the things you're not quite sure about because absolutely Jesus is worth following. He stands up to scrutiny. He stands up to investigation. And he's not just a fact. He's not just a sort of a theory or or even just a historical figure. He is the savior of the world. And wants to be your saviour too. And I'd love to give you this Christmas discovery pack. And inside of it is a gospel, a story of Jesus' life. There's a wide Christmas, which explains probably even better than me about why Christmas is so important. And then also there's an invitation to our next Alpha course on January the 25th. And we'd love to give you this for free. Um, there's some in the foyer and there'll be some in the front. Just come grab them if you would like one. And for those of us that are Jesus followers, I want to leave you with these four titles of Jesus. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. That is how Isaiah predicted Jesus would be and what he would do. And this morning, you may need... You may need counsel. You may be in a pickle. He is the wonderful counselor. He wants to lead you. He's the good shepherd. He wants to be with you. Your problems might be big. Your anxieties might be huge. Your health issues might be overwhelming. But he is mighty God. He is mighty God. He is powerful. He wants to heal. He wants to cleanse. He wants to redeem. He wants to restore. By his Holy Spirit, he is here right now this morning. and He wants to bring his, his might, his power into your life. 
everlasting father. He is the best father you will ever have. Promise. Prince of Peace. Do you need peace today? He's the Prince of Peace. It starts with him. Knowing him means you know peace. And why don't you stand with me and I'm going to pray for us as we finish before I hand over to Dave. There's going to be an opportunity in a moment to have some ministry time. We love ministry time here. It's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. We love to pray for people. We love to bless people. We love to pray for healing. And so there's going to be a team to the left who would love to pray for you this morning. And I think, you know, Christmas is really hard for so many people. I used to dread Christmas for many years. It was so painful. All the losses and the gaps in your life seemed to be kind of made bigger at Christmas. But, you know, Jesus wants to be in those gaps. And he can be by his spirit. But let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus into our world. You incarnated yourself in him. You broke in and became like one of us to show us the way to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us. I just pray for us that this Christmas time, we would experience you in a fresh way. We would share you with confidence and boldness. We would share what you've put in us with those around us. We would experience a fresh revelation who Jesus is, not some mythical figure in a fairy tale, but the reality, the truth, the light of the world. Open our eyes again to see you in a fresh way. Jesus, we love you. Amen.